Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you had to list them, who would be your top five military commanders in history? Perhaps Napoleon, Wellington, Eisenhower, Frederick the Great, Monty, Bodicea, or Boudicca, depending where you come from. The truth is, the list would be different for all of us. So how do we settle this debate? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers, and here to help us distinguish what makes a great or disastrous military commander, I've invited Professor Tony King onto the podcast. Tony is Professor of War Studies at the University of Warwick in the UK and the author of Command, the 21st Century General. It's from Tony's decades of experience of working with the highest levels of military leadership that we get a unique insight into his top five military commanders. I'm keen to hear if you agree, so let me know your top five commanders on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 and on Instagram at James Rogers History. But now, here is the fantastic Tony King on his top five. Enjoy. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm really well. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here and talking. It's great to have you on the podcast. I actually can't believe this is the first time we've got you on the pod. We've been going for a couple of years. This is an outrage, Tony. Well, it's nice to be here. That's all I'd say. You are, of course, the author of numerous books. You most focus on urban warfare at the moment. You're a very busy man. We're very happy you've given us the time. Lots of work on Ukraine, of course, currently. But you've authored a book called Command, the 21st Century General, published by Cambridge University Press. And it's with that in mind that I thought I'd get you on the podcast to talk about your top five commanders in history. What makes a good commander? What makes a bad commander? And I'm going to do the most disgusting thing, and I'm going to make you rank them in the top five order as well. Now, for our listeners, I don't have a clue who Tony has picked. This is all part of it. I just gave him the brief and said, Tony, pop the list together and we can have a chat. So where do we start? Well, I should make some qualifications, which is you set me a task of five top commanders and the obvious five top, you would go Alexander, Napoleon, Marlborough, et cetera, et cetera. And I've done completely the opposite, which is actually to select in a kooky and idiosyncratic way, five commanders that are my top commanders on the basis that intellectually, I have found them the most interesting in understanding the phenomenon of command. So they were the top five commanders 
that I learned about military command. And then in fact, the sort of framework that I was able to build up has allowed me to go, someone like Napoleon or Marlborough, they were really exceptional commanders. But as I'm going to talk about five slightly odd examples that might be slightly obscure, a couple of them are obscure, but I think they're worth having a look at. And that's why I've rated them as my top commanders for their intellectual merit. This sounds exactly the kind of list that we want. And I'm hoping there's something there that I've never even heard of. So you can educate us along the way. So, Tony, number five. And let me just add one other thing. So I focus on divisional commanders because that is a level of war which has deeply interested me in that it's large scale and yet it's still a tactical organization. And then also it allows you to compare more easily across historical periods. So let me start with my last pick, number five. And this is going to be a really strange pick because I can't believe anyone will have heard of this chap, but he's very, very interesting in his appallingness as a divisional commander. So the individual I'm going to talk about is Charles Bullen Smith, who commanded the 51st Highland Division from just the spring of 1944, when he took over command, until the 26th of July in 1944, when he was unceremoniously sacked by Montgomery. And the scene of the sacking is pretty spectacular. Montgomery dragged him back into his command post and said, you must go. The men will not fight for you. Men will be killed following you. Therefore, you must go. And he burst into tears and disappeared into military history at the same moment. Anyway, Charles Willis Smith's interesting, in my view, because he illustrates the failures of command in a perfect way. He had a very esteemed military career. He fought nobly and honorably throughout the First World War as a young officer, was a very effective professional officer in the interwar period, subsequently was on Monty's staff in 3rd Infantry Division during the Battle of France and did well. And that's why Montgomery appointed him to the 51st Highland Division for the Normandy campaign, Operation Overlord. So he's an experienced guy then, Tony. This is someone who... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. To be honest, he had all the background and he'd been a very successful trainer. So he had been in command and done successfully in the 15th Lowland Division and trained them very well. And so he had all this profile where you'd think this guy looks pretty plausible as a divisional commander. Well, 51st Highland Division landed in Normandy four days after D-Day, so about the 10th of June, the main elements came ashore. Six weeks later, he was out of a job. So in combat as that role, he lasted, you know, six weeks. So he lasted about as long as Britain's last Prime Minister. Correct. So he's the kind of Liz Truss of <laughs> British military history. Except I would say this, I don't think there was that much in his past, unlike Truss, that showed probably not up to the job. I mean, all the evidence before was he looked pretty plausible compared with many other candidates, but totally failed. And his failure is interesting. So one of the things that, in terms of understanding generalship and command, I think it's very important to isolate different functions, and they often get mixed up. But there's three different functions of command. There's command itself, the act of giving orders, of defining a mission. And then there's the management, 
which is also recognized in the literature, which is for me is organizing and orchestrating the tasks of which the mission the commander identifies a part of, they constitute the mission. And then finally, of course, the leadership element, i.e. motivating. And it's interesting with Bull and Smith, if you think across those three functions, command, i.e. mission definition, mission management, leadership, we have a total trifecta of failures in Normandy. And they're interesting. So he took over a really famous division. It performed really well in North Africa, really well in Sicily, barring a bit of a wobble on the Zitano River. But it was a really storied, famous division. And it got into Normandy and couldn't do anything. And literally, there's exchanges between Crocker, the first British Army commander, and Montgomery saying, 51st Highland Division, it's not battle-worthy. So here was division that had been absolutely one of those famous divisions in the British Army, had of course been defeated, had fought well at Dunkirk, been reconstituted after that. So what did Bullen Smith do wrong? Well, he basically, the crux came on the night of the 10th and 11th of July, when he decided that what he was going to do is mount a raid on a factory complex to the northeast of Col, called the Colin Bell factory area. And Anyway, so he had this idea of mounting this raid to basically insert engineers who were with the 7th Black Watch, and they were going to somehow infiltrate into this factory area and blow up all the chimneys so that the Germans couldn't use the chimneys as observation points. Anyway, the brigade commander, Brigadier Murray of 153rd Brigade, was really sceptical. He just went, well, it's never going to work. And even if you take all the chimneys down, there's still the factories and they've got roofs on and the Germans can still look from the roof. So the whole plan was totally ridiculous. It was totally overambitious. I mean, clearly, if it was an important objective, the Germans were going to defend it very seriously, which they did. And subsequently, it was only taken when basically a full division of assault cleared out the area during Optotalized. So mission definition, completely horrible, never going to work, totally impossible. And then in terms of management, again, totally horrible. There was no battle preparation. He thought up the plan. The orders were given less than 24 hours before the operation. There was no time to practice, no time to rehearse. There was clearly insufficient artillery support. There was no reserve. And on the actual day of the operation, in the archive, there's no record of Bullen Smith providing any instruction whatsoever. I couldn't locate where he was during the battle, but I presume it must have been in the divisional CP a few miles back. But there's no evidence of any intervention as the plan unraveled, and it unraveled very quickly. Basically, the idea was first coordinates took a village to the right, fifth Black Watch took the crossroads, and then seventh Black Watch filtered into the factory area and they'd blow up the chimneys and come back. Well, the whole plan unraveled straight away. First Gordon never got into the village. The Black Watch got the crossroads, but then were surrounded. The 10 tanks that they were with were immediately blown up by Panzer counterattack, and the gunners ran away. Apart from that, it was a great operation. By dawn, they retreated, 127 casualties, dead, wounded, captured. It was a beautiful example of a genuine military disaster, and so predictable. Are there any cutting snippets of what any of the commanders said about this? Was this builder's a vanity mission? Was he just trying to get his name in the history books? Is that what he was aiming for? I think so. It's a famous division, so there's a lot of history on it. There's quite a few personal accounts, Alistair Borthwick and others, and there's good archive in the National Archives of it. But 
Charles Bullensmith never gave an actual explanation of why he chose, so you've got to infer it. And this is my inference, that what happened was that Bullensmith took over command. He got into Normandy. They were at the place called the Triangle, which was basically the worst place in Normandy. It was the heaviest concentration of German armour. They were under serious artillery fire and attack from the Germans. They were taking really quite significant casualties all the time in a defensive setting. And I think that Bullensmith thought, right, they needed to try and create some momentum to break this cycle of declining morale which 51st Highland was suffering. And of course, he was right that it was an important tactical objective. So I think that there were good tactical reasons for doing it. And then I think there was a good organizational reason to it, that the 51st Highland Division needed a win. The problem was that wasn't an operation which could be won in the manner that Bullen Smith identified it. And as I say, the thing is that his brigade commanders, Brigadier Murray in particular, was extremely forceful in that this was a crazy operation. So Bullen Smith continued to do it despite really serious skepticism on the part of his brigade commanders. And his brigade commanders were all extremely experienced. And they insisted that they never communicated that discontent to their soldiers. But Bullen Smith's commanders, his own subordinates, had seriously advised him against this operation. And I think, therefore, you've got to look at a level of naivety, of misunderstanding. He was a good junior officer, a good trainer, a good staff officer, but someone who didn't understand the mechanisms, the mechanics, the dynamics of divisional operations and what a division could do. The only sensible thing to have done would be to say to Crocker, right, I'm going to take the Column Bell area and I need a core level and a divisional level artillery support and I'm going to put two brigades at it and you're going to need to cover my line in the triangle while I do it. He totally failed to do that. He thought he could somehow do it on a shoestring, totally misconceiving the machinery that is at work in a division. He's not a terrible man by any stretch of the imagination. So he wasn't just trying to waste his soldiers. I think he genuinely thought, 51st Highland Division could do something that was going to raise morale that was tactically important, but had the quite opposite effect. That's my interpretation. And as I say, I don't think there's any interpretation of carelessness, just frankly, naivety and incompetence in terms of judgment. I like the way you're taking us with this, Tony, because like you say, when we think of top five military commanders, you wouldn't usually start with one that had wasted an, an entire division, but we're learning lessons about how to command here. So, take us down to number four. Okay, number four. Now, this one, again, might be really obscure to some of the listeners. So, it's Owen Prince-Smith, commander of the 1st Marine Division in 1950, who commanded the famous Battle of Chosin Reservoir, the march up to Chosin and then the march down from Chosin, the retreat back to Hung Nam and away from the Chinese forces. So, the kind of strategic story is really famous with MacArthur, but underneath this micro-tactical level, there was equally interesting things going on. And in my view, one of the most interesting was 1st Marine Division, O.P. Smith's performance of command. Now, I got really fascinated by Smith and by the Chasing Reservoir campaign. And I did really a lot of work on it for my book on command. And then it just didn't quite fit in. But he's very interesting in terms of his command of that division. And also, He's very interesting as a comparator to the 1st Marine Division in 2003. 
So if you look at 1st Marine Division 1950, going up to the Chosin, it's only 78 miles up to Udamni where they finished and got repulsed. But it's very interesting, the capacity between 1st Marine Division's operation then, the 1st Marine Division's operation in 2003, where they advanced northwards to Baghdad. And so there's an interesting kind of comparator of 20th, 21st century commanders and what divisional commands look like in those eras. So O.P. Smith is someone I think is interesting and hugely underrated as a divisional commander. Let's just have a little bit of context there for the listeners, Tony, because we've got to think about this point in the Korean War. You've got lots of mistakes taking place, perhaps, lots of misintelligence about just how heavily the Chinese are involved. And this battle for Chosin Reservoir takes place about a month after China does get involved and you start having the really intense period of advance and then retreat. So with that in mind, take us into this history. So 1st Marine Division was under 10 Corps, which was commanded by a guy called General Armand, who strikes me as an appalling character in every single way. He's a kind of sycophant to MacArthur, and he agreed with the line that MacArthur was taking. You know, you could agree strategically that it was really sensible to go to the Yali River to completely reintegrate the entire north of Korea. I mean, that strategically is not mad, but what's unforgivable as a military command is to underestimate the enemy. And Almond absolutely refused. So he was getting intelligence from the end of September, certainly clearly in October, that significant Chinese forces were starting to infiltrate and that his divisions underneath him, particularly 7th Division and 1st Marine Division, were starting to encounter significant elements of the Chinese army. And he totally ignored this. Now, this is where I think O.P. Smith is interesting because O.P. Smith had fought through the Pacific campaign as a staff officer, but also the commander had been very effective. And he took these things seriously. And he thought, the Chinese are here. They are organized and in force. And he took the intelligence reports and then had a series of furious rows with Armand about what they needed to do and what was involved. Now, in terms of the sort of schema I've laid out before, in terms of command, mission definition, mission management, leadership, O.P. Smith's interesting. So the idea is, especially in the 20th century, as a divisional commander, you are a low-level tactical commander. You get your mission from your core commander. You obviously do your mission analysis, but it's not that difficult because it's pretty obvious what to do. And then you organize the operation. But note with O.P. Smith, basically he got a mission from his core commander, Armand, which was basically keep going, advance to the Yalu. It's total nonsense. The Chinese aren't there. We've got this one in the bag. Basically, he drunk the MacArthur Kool-Aid, essentially. And Smith totally disagreed with him. So he got a mission from Tencor, which he didn't agree with. He realized he couldn't just turn around and go, right, I'm going to invent a new mission. So what he did was quite clever. As they advanced from Hungnam through Kochiri, Haguri, and then a bit of his force, five Marines and seven Marines up to Udanam, so basically to the northeast of the Chosin Reservoir, through November, and then they got to this final point, Udamni, in the 29th of November. And what Smith ordered his regimental commanders to do was to basically advance really slowly. So he knew that something was up. He knew that the Chinese were in force. He couldn't say, right, we're going on strike here. So he said to his commander, Colonel Murray, who was the commander of 5th Regiment, take five days to get the 10 miles from where our central point, Ugari Ri, is to Yadamni, not two. It should take you two, take five. Anyway, so what he did was to basically 
keep his division as consolidated as he possibly could, knowing he was going to face a counterattack. And the result was, unlike 7th Division, 7th Division was destroyed and elements of it trickled back. But because Opie Smith had kept his division slightly concentrated, they were able to make a fighting withdrawal. And the fighting started 29th of November. There's bugles and trumpets and everything. And the Chinese divisions start to make these assaults and really put pressure on 5th and 7th Marines to the west of Chosin. And gradually they draw back to Hugaru Ri, where Smith was with his CP. Now, the second key decision, which is really interesting, really important about seeing clearly the mission. And everyone thought he was totally insane at the time. But he said to his staff, he said, right, so we've got to get back from here. It's 70 miles back to safety. And there's one road to go along. And everyone was thinking, right, it's a retreat, panic, let's get out of here. He said, right, we're not retreating. We're attacking in a different direction. Now, some of this obviously is an information operation. And there's a famous quote to the press where the press said, what's happening? He said, are you retreating? He said, hell no, retreating. We're attacking in a different direction. It was very US Marine Corps. It was very leatherneck. But then technically, is he correct, Tony? Because surely at this point, he's surrounded, right? Surely by this point. So this is exactly the point. It wasn't just bluster. So it's a really important point about command. He'd identified what the operation was. It wasn't a retreat. And if he'd gone, right, let's just run away, his division, like 7th Division, would have been destroyed. But what he actually organized was a phased, systematic attack in reverse. Because the Chinese cut off lots of bits of the road back down to Kotori and back down to Hungnam already. There was a divisional advance column. And okay, it was fighting in the wrong direction. But it was fighting down this road, and what happened was a sequence of battles in which the infantry would take the high ground, and then the column would advance the next point, then five or seven regimes would take the next one. So he was absolutely right. But even his own staff officer, Alpha Bowser, his G3, thought at first he was totally insane. As the operation got underway, the staff realized he's absolutely right. And by organizing it as an attack, we all know what to do. We know how to give orders out for an attack. We know where the artillery should go. We know how to echelon the different forces. So actually, it was a brilliant decision. And those two decisions, in terms of mission definition, utterly critical to the successful extraction of 1st Marine Division from Chosin. They were crucial to what we might call the march down. And there were other really interesting points about O.B. Smith. So he had a really good operational sense of what a mission should look like and what a division should look like and how you could deploy a division. Note the contrast with Bull and Smith. And then in terms of running the headquarters, he's extremely effective. So he selected a series of officers that he really rated for the headquarters. He was able to do that. And he picked a couple of really good ones. So his G3 was a guy called Alpha Bowser and was a superb officer. And basically developed a very close working relationship. And in fact, Bowser wanted to get appointed as a commander. He wanted to get battalion command. And Smith wouldn't let him because he realized how essential this G3 officer was to his operation. So essentially, the way that Opie Smith ran it was he gave the mission. He decided, right, I want this to happen. This is the orders. And then Bowser and his team, he had a really good deputy called Weinkoff. And they developed the detailed plan while Opie Smith checked that everything else was working. The other key thing that's interesting is one of the reasons why they also survived was the close air support from 1st Marine Air Wing under 
General Field Harris. And they had a good relationship. It was interesting, though. Basically, what Opie Smith said was, right, anywhere on the road is artillery up to five miles. That's my job. Outside of five miles, Field Harris, it's a free fire zone. And so they had a really good relationship and the relationship worked really well. So Opie Smith didn't have just a brilliant idea. He then put the mechanics in place, unlike Bull and Smith, to actually bring that mission into reality by having a headquarters organized and structured in a way we could actually do it. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, I'm just letting you talk here, Tony, because I'm learning so much. But the one thing about O.P. Smith is he's concise in his orders. He's under control. He seems like he knows when to talk truth to power, but also when not to overstep that line of insubordination. And that is a fine line for a divisional commander to tread. But he's also someone that just seems incredibly tactically proficient. So I don't know how you're going to up us into number three, in your top three, really. This one, I think a lot of people know. And this may be controversial, putting him in front of O.P. Smith, the divisional commander, but I think he's probably worth it. So here I'm thinking of John Monash. 
the Australian commander who eventually went on to command the Australian Corps in 19, end of 17 into a 1918 to the end of the war, but in 17 commanded 3rd Australian Division. And I think he's a really deeply interesting person. He was not a professional soldier. He was a highly competent civil engineer, which actually is deeply interesting in understanding and appreciating the way he approached command. And certainly I put him third, but I also recognize he's by no means a perfect commander, but he's one of the most interesting. I mean, Charles being the famous historian, he had some great quotes about Monash, which I think are accurate, but also insightful. So he said at one point, he said, oh, Monash, he had petrol in his veins and a computer in his head. So he was like the archetypal modern commander. It's quite interesting thinking 100 years later, that's what an official historian is saying about one of their divisional commanders. But he was a polymath in many ways, wasn't he? He was an engineer, highly educated. So that career prior to the First World War must have really helped during the war itself. Yeah, and he was deeply interested in music as well. I'm not able to nail it down. And I think the engineering analogy is much closer. I think he had this extraordinary three-dimensional vision. And I think this is from civil engineering. So civil engineers can see in three dimensions so that they can see bridges or structures and see what they're going to look like before they're built. They can actually see the actual mechanics of building this thing. And the music thing is also interesting. He was really deeply interested in music, very good musician. And that phrase, Slim's phrase, a division is an orchestra of war. And some of the ways that he orchestrated his operations, so he's really good at tying the different elements together. There's something slightly compositional about the way he approached He was writing a score, not just a plan. And it's interesting that his plan for Messine, Messine's the battle that I think was his masterpiece, Divisional Commander, the Battle of Messine, June 1917. He called the plan that he developed his magnum opus. And just for our listeners who always think that Divisional Commanders, their orders should be short and concise, magnum opus was about two inches thick. So the idea that all modern commanders are somehow a corruption of the curtness of the pure 20th century commander. Not in the case of Monash. His plan for Messine is basically a doorstopper, which wow. I think also reflects this sort of slightly musical thing that it was a composition, it was a symphony with all of the different elements linked together. I don't know too much about that battle. There's one thing that sticks out to me and it kind of connects with what you're saying because you're almost saying that Monash can think in three dimensions. And one key part of this battle is there's an underground element, isn't there? Sure. So the whole battle starts with massive series of mine strikes across the Messine Ridge. And so it's a second army battle and starts with this explosion of these... Oh, so they've dug underground, they've laid explosives and they've blown and them up. And then essentially each hour, the mines blow up and the Australian Division is one and third advance through the area that's been created. So the descriptions of the blowing of the Messine Ridge are unbelievable. It's this artificial volcano. It's before dawn on that morning in June. And then you essentially get this unbelievable hellish scene of the entire top of this ridge blowing off. Black, 
red fire earth being thrown hundreds of feet into the air. Truly an awesome spectacle in the proper sense of the word. He achieved his mission within about 95 minutes. So the divisional objectives were all achieved. It was like a piece of clockwork. I mean, it was like a symphony. So he had this extraordinary intelligence. And this is the other thing about Monash, which is interesting. So most divisional commanders need to be really strong personalities, especially in citizen armies. They need to act like paternal father figures to their very young soldiers. They need to project a forceful, charismatic personality. Monash wasn't like that at all. The whole thing was an enterprise in engineering. So therefore, he didn't create a histrionic impression on his men, although he was brilliant in O groups. He always talked through very carefully the operation beforehand with no notes in incredible detail. And his audiences, so his officers principally, his subordinate commanders, they were delighted by his performance. So he had a leadership effect on his officers, but he wasn't charismatic or like an Australian, like Pompiella. He wasn't like that. He was a technologist and the soldiers loved him because if you're under uh, Monash, you had a very good chance of surviving the attack because it actually would go to plan. The artillery would actually come in on the time. You would actually be behind the barrage. And so you had a good chance of surviving, as in fact the division did at Messine. And no one would say he invented anything, but he did things like invented new ways of ensuring he knew where the front line of his forces were. So when I say inventing, he sort of adapted and exploited. So one of the ways he did it, he knew he needed to know where his troops were. So he used telephone lines a lot, he used pigeons a lot. One of the most innovative was he used something called contact aircraft. So he got a load of reconnaissance aircraft to fly over the division with maps. And the troops obviously had their identification size behind them and would hold various bits of identifications. And the aircraft would fly over his division and they would mark on maps exactly the forward edge of the third division. They would roll these things up into little tubes They'd fly back to Monash's CP and they'd drop them in a field just by and he'd have a cyclist who'd bring them back. So someone like Messine, he was getting information about forward ledge of troops five minutes late. So it wasn't digital communications, but it's pretty effective. And let's be honest, I mean, you can be a good leader when you're naturally a genius as well. That kind of helps. If you've got that sort of brain wiring that can help you connect all of those dots in a really innovative way then you've already got those good first steps to be a good commander in the field. Not all the time, but in this case, certainly. He's even knighted in the field, for God's sake. So he's a pretty impressive character. But take us down to number two, Tony. This was a tricky one for me, but I'm going to go number two, James Mattis. James Mattis. Okay, all right. Well, someone that we've lined up to come on the show in the future, so I'm sure he's going to be very happy about this. The soldier scholar, the warrior monk. Tell us more about James Mattis. Something quite interesting has happened with the American forces, especially with American Marine Corps and the American Army. If we look on a slightly longer historical trajectory, it comes out in 1973, the American Army and the American Marine Corps are totally broken. They're broken horribly by Vietnam. They failed militarily. Drugs are rife. Discipline is terrible. There's very high levels of indiscipline, mutiny, and fragging of junior officers. So the force comes out of Vietnam in a completely broken force, and then it rebuilds itself. And one of the most interesting things about the 9-11 wars, the global war on terror, is that you see the emergence of a post-Vietnam generation 
of a reinvigorated, professionalized American Marine Corps and American Army. And there's a lot of really excellent commanders who come out of this system. Petraeus, McChrystal, Odierno, McMaster. And so it's a very competitive list. It's very easy as British people to somehow disparage the capabilities of American forces. I mean, I've said it before, I'll say it again. The American forces of the 21st century are of historically significant quality. I don't think people realize how powerful American military forces are and how excellent they are. And if you want an example of that, look at Iraq 2003 and look at Ukraine 2022. Strategically, both wars are very similar. The governments in power, Bush slash Putin, make terrible strategic decisions. They decide to invade another country on utterly specious intelligence. What happens? Iraq, whatever we might say subsequently happened to Iraq, and that's a complicated story. Note, three weeks later, the US Army and Marine Corps stood in Baghdad, and the regime is dead, gone. Nine months later, Russia's just given up Kershon, and I think they'll hold a rump of the country. After having their own run on the capital, which is, of course, not successful, do you think that that was in Putin's mind, the idea that you could race to the capital, decapitate the leadership, all but literally, and then take over the country? Do you think that lesson of Iraq was on his mind? I don't know whether the lesson of Iraq was on his mind, but that's what he wanted to do. In Iraq, the miscalculation was Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, totally false. That justified the whole operation. In terms of the attack on Kyiv, I mean, whether he was influenced by the Thunderons, I don't know. It's possible. But certainly, he thought he'd come down to Hospital Airfield, he'd take the airfield, everybody would run away. I mean, I think the more likely parallel actually is Afghanistan. I think he was thinking it's going to be Christmas Day, 1979. I'll roll in, I'll assassinate President Amin, and I'll be fine. Now, note the difference. The American forces delivered. And even when the situation became really difficult, when they moved late 2003 through to 2008 into a really difficult counterinsurgency operation, they were good enough to transform under fire and still deliver. So whatever's happened subsequently, we keep forgetting 2008, basically the Americans won. With the surge in the Anbar uprising, the political situation of that phase, they'd won it. They defeated Al-Qaeda. They'd actually created a plausible regime they'd stopped civil war. 2008, interesting moment. Note how good the American army, American marines, and American forces generally are. And note, it's also, they're not invading Mexico. They're invading a country 6,000 miles away from DC. So it's expeditionary. Russia can't even invade the next door state successfully. So why am I saying this? Because it shows you the remarkable capabilities at this point of US military forces. And this then fits in with why Mattis is interesting. Well, yes, exactly. Bring us back round to Mattis. Was Mattis involved in the Thunder Runs onto Baghdad? It's like he was there from the very beginning, right? No. So the Thunder Runs are 3rd Infantry Division, and they occur on the 5th and 7th of April. They occur on the western side of the city. 1st Marine Division comes in from the east 
So they weren't involved in the Thunder Runs, but they were involved in some of the fighting around Baghdad a lot and then pushed in and infiltrated into Baghdad, but they weren't part of the Thunder Runs. But they were there from the start. They were still a spearhead. Yeah, but this is then interesting because this comes back to O.P. Smith, divisional commanders getting missions. So Mattis didn't really get a mission. 3rd Infantry Division's mission was to go to Baghdad and take down the regime. 1st Marine Division was the supporting division. It wasn't on the main effort. And Mattis never got a proper mission. Basically, the mission was, well, kind of drive up past Al Nazareth and towards kind of Al-Kut, and then we'll work it out. And all commanders note, he found that totally unacceptable. He said, right, we need a clear mission. He said, right, the mission is we will go all the way to Baghdad in support of 3rd Infantry Division. He, as just a two-star commander, made that decision. Now, there was interesting elements to it that he also recognised that it had to be really done quickly or there'll be political repercussions. And note how, and this is very different from a 20th century commander, he's thinking strategic implications of his tactical actions even then. So it's interesting that he embraces that mission to Baghdad, even though he didn't get direction, especially from General Franks and Semcom, who no one is very complimentary about. But one of the failings of General Franks is he didn't give 1st Marine Division a proper mission, which Mattis then had to perform. So what Mattis had to do, he had to take a division of 20,000 Marines, 9,000 vehicles, the column was 90 miles long, and he had to drive that column in 3D through a load of urban areas, across a desert, into Baghdad. So the challenge of that is really significant for a divisional commander. Even driving your friends in convoy down the M5, it's quite tricky. And notice also that the division actually was not just a ground division. I mean, supported by 3 Marine Air Wing. And effectively, 3 Marine Air Wing and 1st Marine Division became a sort of, although they were separate entities commanded by one Marine Expeditionary Force, General Conway at the three-star core level, actually, they became a kind of organic Marine Air Ground Task Force. And so when we say one division advanced, it was 90 miles long, it was also an animal, an entity, a machine that went up to 30,000 feet because it had its helicopters, it had its supporting aircraft. So you have this weird three-dimensional thing made up of humans, vehicles of various types, and aircraft. And that takes a special commander then to take charge and coordinate this. And what's interesting is when I spoke to James Mattis, he really, really communicated to me, you were in the presence of someone who really understood his business. That is what it requires. To be a good divisional commander, that's what it requires. You need to see the animal, the beast, the machine, as it is moving through time and space, and what that machine can do and what it can't do, and what it needs and what it's going to look like in seven days' time. And someone like Matt, someone like Monash, definitely have that ability to see something moving through time and space. Now, what did he do? What command arrangements did he set in place so that this weird machine could do what it's doing? Well, what it says, there's a number of interesting things. One, he creates a really close relationship with the three Marine Air Wing commander, James Amos, and they talked constantly. So you had this really interesting relationship. Strictly speaking, they were just peer commanders and they were deferred to the core commander, to Conway. But that's not what happened. What actually happened is they formed a partnership between themselves and sort of create an organic, informal, supporting, supported relationship so that this weird thing could move along the roads past Al Nazareth 
Mattis realized from the outset how important air was going to be. Why? Logistics. Artillery rounds and artillery pieces are a nightmare to move. So what Mattis made a decision early on was, right, we're going to strip out as much as possible and rely more on close air support. So to allow this machine, this column to move forward, it then implied that you had to create a really close relationship with James Amos so that the ground elements actually had the support they needed. Because if he said, right, okay, no problems, we're going to strip out artillery and we're just going to drive really quickly. What happens when you hit opposition around Al Cup, which they did? So the next stage is it presumed a relationship which he built and it presumed a number of other relationships. So you got the march column, it's 90 miles long. It's going through complicated terrain. At various points, quite a lot of it is in contact. The vanguard element, three light armored regiment is in contact, but so are your logistic elements way back down in Al-Kut. How are you going to command that? Well, he did two things. One is he created a really strong team of commanders, like a fraternity, a circle of trust of commanders, and really mentored and trained them and cared for them in the build-up. Now, he didn't know all his platoon commands, but he formed this really tight team of his regimental combat team commanders, artillery commanders, and then some of the battalion commanders and the supporting commanders. So they formed a kind of rugby team-like group. And they trained them really, really intensely with a series of rehearsal of concept drills. And this wasn't some kind of game. What he was looking through is, okay, so as the column advances to Nazaria, what five things could happen? Every single likely scenario was rehearsed. So his subordinate commanders were tied together to him in terms of trust, but there was a deep professional. I mean, he described it as like a football team playing plays on the field. He's the quarterback, but they're playing plays. And they prepared very carefully the kinds of plays they were going to. Why do you need to do that? Because if you've got 20,000 Marines and 9,000 vehicles, you can't have a regimental combat team commander or battalion commander making it up they go along. It's like the joke, I can't remember the comedian said it, some of my best ad libs are years in the making. That's what a military operation should be like. And so the thing about Mattis here then, Tony, is it's almost like we're making it sound like he could look into the future in a clairvoyant kind of way. But it's more about having that knowledge, that nous, that know-how to have contingencies in place to see what might happen, worst case scenario planning, and then having a way to respond to that and to continue to achieve your objectives. So that is good command. So if you think about a military operation, there's only three things can happen. It goes to plan. It goes better than planned. It goes worse than planned. And the better and worse planned, you can predict the outlines of what that's going to look like. So there shouldn't be one plan. There should be a plan, because the A plan is pretty simple. It's the contingencies that you need the planning cell to be thinking about preemptively. And this is what they did. And they predicted various things. So the first Marine Division, one of the key points was they went through Al-Nazaria and they had to take two bridges at Al-Nazaria, one across the river, Euphrates, and one across the canal. And they'd rehearsed this and they knew this is going to be tricky. What Actually, the Marine Expedition Force decided was they were going to put a brigade from the 2nd Division on top of Al-Nazaria. Mattis and his staff just went, this is madness. It's never going to work. There's not enough room on the road. Funny old thing. There wasn't enough room on the road. And in fact, it wasn't totally due to it, but the Marines lost 18 Marines in a day in Al-Nazaria. And it wasn't totally due to the Task Force Tower on top of the 1st Marine Division, but it contributed to the confusion 
that was going on. Mm. Now, what's interesting for us here is they knew that. They imaged that. They had rehearsed that. They'd worked that out. So it shows this ability to, as I say, think through time and space and to do so preemptively and think through plausible problems and prepare plausible solutions. So, yeah, maths is interesting. And of course, personality-wise, exerted an extraordinary hold on not only his commands, but everybody. I went to visit 1st Marine Division, oh God, 2017, 2018, Absolutely brilliant trip out there. Really learnt loads. And then there's a Royal Marine LO who had got me in. Lovely chap called Woody. We went surfing after we'd done the work and we're sitting on the lineup on our surfboards. And I was talking with him. It was a beautiful day. And he was talking about Iraq and he was saying, oh, it was totally incredible. And he'd been a company commander in 1st Marine Division. And he said, Mattis used to come around to the company two or three times before they deployed, talk to every single company about what they were going to do and explain what they were going to do. And then later on, it was after the invasion, they were really struggling with morale, et cetera. And Mattis came to visit the company and they were saying, oh, well, there's these problems, these problems, these problems. And Mattis said, right, okay, I totally hear you, but let's just think about this in a historical sense. Compared with the Marines on Pillaloo, this is nothing. So when Mattis got there, the whole company was depressed and down. And he, he said, after Mattis left, they were all completely charged up and ready to go again. He had an amazing electric effect on. And so combined with this deeply developed technical skill is a real humanity, which 18-year-old Alabama gets. I can tell that. And I feel like you could do a whole episode on Mattis. So bring us to an end here. Who has taken the title? So I've talked about someone who's a really human and humane person in Mattis. So you're going to be amazed by my number one, Bernard Montgomery. Oh, okay. So we've got some contrast going on here then, Tony. Tell us why Monty gets the crown. Montgomery, we can argue about, as an army group commander, how good he was. But as a divisional commander, I am absolutely convinced he was the best divisional commander in the British Army in the Second World War by quite a long way. And in a way, precisely because his reputation has been so bad as he introduced, I put him as number one as a provocation to everybody. But I really genuinely believe it. He wasn't a nice bloke. I mean, Michael Howard said a great thing about him. Montgomery was not a gentleman. That was his great strength. He was a total shit, basically. We could definitely dispute how good he was as an army commander, an army group commander. That point, certainly other commanders definitely start to exceed him. And he's not in the character as Napoleon, Wellington, Marshall Sachs, Mulberry. He's not, I don't think he's in that character. But as divisional commander, oh, wow, I think he was unbelievable, unbelievably capable. And let me give a few reasons why I think he's so good. So his moment as divisional commander came, Battle of France, May 1940, 3rd Infantry Division. So he's divisional commander in a complete catastrophe in which everything that could go wrong does go wrong, and they get absolutely hammered. And yet, 3rd Infantry Division performs amazingly, gets back to Dunkirk with fewer casualties than anyone else, having executed unbelievably complicated manoeuvres. So there's a lot to be said for Monty. And the other thing is to remember with Monty is just the extent of his military experience. 
Deployed to France in the British Expeditionary Force in August 1914, led a platoon attack at La Cateau, brandishing a sword, was on the Western Front the entire four years, principally as a staff officer, at which he was brilliant, but in the front lines in brigade. And Wasn't he shot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's wounded, did all that, came home, Irish War of Independence. Then he went out as divisional commander in the 30s to Palestine, was part of the suppression of the Arab Revolt, and then straight from that command there into 3rd Infantry Division and the Battle of France. So, you know, I mean, obviously, early 20th century military officers, their careers look like that. Now, as a divisional commander, what do I think? I think he displayed all the characteristics that were required and did so in a situation of extremity, which shows how capable he was. So, first of all, mission. Montgomery was brilliant on mission definition. And it wasn't just mission definition saying, okay, we're going to do this. So in his notes about divisional command, which he wrote as an army group commander at the end of 44, he says, no victories will be gained unless commanders will sort out clearly in their minds those essentials which are vital for success. But what's really interesting here, it's not just, okay, you work out what to do. What you do, you work out the boundary conditions that are going to make it happen. And those boundary conditions form the entire framework for your thinking. So mission definition isn't just a matter of, oh yeah, I think we'll go over there. It's like, given that we're going to go over there, these are the five things that we need to do. And I need to command and make sure those always happen or the mission's never going to happen. And Monty was not some kind of grandiose intellectual, but you know, he had that Clausewitzian thing. Clausewitz said, you don't want someone who's an academic. You want someone with a practical intelligence. And Montgomery had a really fine practical intelligence. He understood not just what needed to be done, but what that implied about the organization. Therefore, he could identify when the conditions have changed and therefore the mission is no longer viable. And isn't that epitomized by Normandy as well? Because when you look at that period, when we talk about D-Day, and it's, it's obviously all we really ever talk about when we're talking about the Normandy invasion, this goes on for 12 weeks. And that isn't by accident. That is a deliberate holding back to achieve the mission in a war of attrition. He wanted to break the back of the German forces before he moved forward. And interestingly, you can bring this back round to number five, poor Charles Bullen-Smith. You can see that he must be frustrated at this point. He wants to try and get out there, make a name for himself, push through to victory. But, you know, when you're up against people like Monty holding you back, making sure you move forward together, you don't break the line. What makes Monty special there is that he has the courage of his convictions. And, I mean, well, he doesn't make any friends at that point, does he? No, no, but exactly. So, And you can see his approach to army and army group level operations formulating as a divisional commander. Exactly that. So one of the principles he developed was that the first thing you need to do is you need to wear down the enemy's reserves. And that's what I mean by boundary condition, the framework, what's essential. Go back to Bull and Smith. What would Monty have done given Colin Bell? He would have said, right, okay, to get into Colin Bell, I need to absolutely suppress enemy artillery in that area. I need to absolutely suppress the inevitable panzer counterattack. What am I going to do to do that? Have I got the resources? And if the answer is no, which on the 10th and 11th of July, that was the answer. Montgomery would have said, it's not a viable act of war, so don't do it. And in the 20th century, when mass forces, mass artillery is the order of the day, he had seen so many attacks fail because the boundary conditions of success had been ignored. 
he understood what mass industrial 20th century warfare looked like. And that framed what could happen. And so what was interesting, as I say, is that he identified a mission for third infantry division. Here's the thing. He knew what would happen. He knew they were going to get shellacked. So what he realized was, right, the mission of third infantry division is to defend and to mount a kind of defensive withdrawal. That's what he wanted to do. So what do we need to practice? What we're we going to be ordered to do, we're going to be ordered to advance to a river line, hold the river line, but we won't hold it because the French will clear out and we'll be surrounded. So after they deployed in spring and through April with 3rd Infantry Division, he trained them repeatedly on exercises to advance to a river line and withdraw at night. You see, I always think this is the mark of any good commander or good general, those who train in retreat. And I've said it before on this podcast because Brooke did the same at this point. And I think that that alone, you've convinced me that Monty gets the top spot. Yeah, totally. So how did he get the division to do what he's doing? Well, he interviewed a couple of things. One, drills. Third Infantry Division basically operated on drills ordered by Monty. He'd got a repertoire of manoeuvres that the brigades did on his order. And that's what they basically trained to do. And his subordinates were very closely commanded by him. So he was not an easy man to be subordinate to. He oversaw his commanders deeply. He sat them ruthlessly if they didn't do what he wanted. So he had a team that was basically like a rugby team that had been organized to a series of drills, and it did. The other thing was interesting with Monty is that what he then did is he had a very serious distribution between staff and headquarters. He had a very good Royal Marine General Staff Officer 1, his kind of ops officer, a guy called Victor Brown, and his own command. And essentially what he did is every day, Montgomery went out in his vehicle out into the field and he basically supervised really closely his commanders. He was checking what they were doing was right. And then about four o'clock, he'd come back to the headquarters and he'd say, right, tomorrow, this is what we're going to do. He'd basically give his orders to Victor Brown. Victor Brown would admin them. Monty would have dinner, go to bed get up the next morning. And that's what he did through the whole three-week campaign and never to be disturbed in crisis. But the result was he ended up with a, I keep using the word machine, he ended up with a machine that could operate under unbelievable duress. The other thing with Monty to recognize is he was not a very nice bloke to us, but to his soldiers, he really exerted something. So the thing about Monty is he was totally unflappable. He totally enjoyed the Battle of France. And in the sand dunes at Dunkirk, when Alan Book broke down weeping under the pressure, it was Monty who got hold of him and sort of hugged him back. Because Monty had had a bloody great time. And he therefore exuded a confidence to his soldiers. And he, these were professional soldiers in 3rd Infantry Division, but he was brilliant at doing it with conscripts, with citizen soldiers, both the force of character and the institution of those kind of hollow squares where he would talk constantly with his soldiers. So although actually he was a psychopath, he could imitate a normal human being with people he didn't know. So I think as a divisional commander, I can't think of a better one in the Second World War. I don't think Rommel was, was a platoon commander who was in command of a division. And note, Rommel and Montgomery nearly fought each other. Rommel would never have defeated, you know, division on division, no way. And no, Montgomery's division got away. So for me, that's why I put him as number one. I think he's really, in his very unpleasantness, he's really interesting. 
Well, I think we're going to have to get you to rewrite your book or in the next edition to redefine those categories because your top three, Tony, have been a genius polymath. We've had a contemplative futurist and now we've got a total psychopath. And war is a strange beast. And sadly, I think you're correct. You need to have those sort of characters to have the success that war demands. Tony, thank you so much for your time for this tour de force. I, I feel like... Monash would have been proud of you with the amount of detail that you've given to us. You've got to tell us, though, where can we read your book? What is the title? So the title of the book on command is Command, the 21st Century General. I mean, it's on Amazon. It's Cambridge University Press 2019. So that's the book. And yeah, I'd be, you know, interested in if you find it interesting. Well, I can guarantee it is interesting. I've read the book. I highly recommend it. And we'll put a link to it in our show notes. Tony, you know, you're always welcome on the podcast. And I look forward to having a beer and chatting more about this in Glasgow in a few weeks. So see you later. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.